Welcome to Movement is My Constant. This is the podcast for breaking stagnation patterns. Through interviews with movement researchers, I seek inspiration in their experience and encourage you to stay curious, to explore movement with awareness, knowing that the body contains the intelligence to make decisions and communicate with grace. Enjoy this space. My name is Anna and I am your host today. Um, so there is this general movement towards, you know, more awareness over time and uh, more ethics. Um, so we'd see every aspect of life transformed. You know, you go to your doctor and your doctor would do a test, but he'd also ask you how you feel. Um, and, you know, maybe you'd look at your metrics and you kind of tune into certain things. And you'd, instead of just giving you drugs, he would suggest a yoga class. Hi, Mark. Welcome. Welcome. Yeah. Nice to, to see you again. You too, you too. Uh, it's a pleasure having you here today. I know you're very busy as usual, <laughs> uh, and I'm really grateful for the for our short conversation today. So thank you. Welcome to Movement is My Constant. You're known to uh, to the community as Mr. Embodiment, and uh, you embodied this uh, this this title as a leader of this movement, like of this uh, as we are changing. Uh, the world to be a more human world, let's say, uh, you are one key figure in doing that, bringing together embodiment practitioners, movement, pra yeah, movement practitioners, uh, also therapists, uh, so that we can engage in conversations, moving as well, and take action to turn this world into a more human world. You are an author, podcaster, teacher, and many other things, and you organize multiple events, and uh, yeah, you're just trying to bring people together. I guess that's the one of the big, big, uh, big aspects of it. Anyone who knows you knows you have a great passion for this work. And uh, that is seen every time we are all together. So I really thank you for your work. And uh, it's no secret also that you have plans to move to another country. And we will also discover that. Let's start from the beginning. What is embodiment? Uh, I get asked this every time now. And, you <laughs> I know. know. Uh, various interviewers started calling me Mr. Embodiment. There's lots of people in this field, of course, but um, yeah. it's just because I became associated with the word. A um, mm. few answers to it. So we could say it's the view of the body, which is subjective, not objective. So the inside out view of the body, how it relates to who we are, how the body is not just an it, but part of the I, a um, bit philosophical. We could also say it's a sort of umbrella term, for all the uh, awareness-based movement arts. So, you know, we could contrast, say, exercise, there's nothing wrong with that, but contrast with a lot of yoga, conscious dance, most martial arts, body therapy, even improv. And so we kind of need a, an overall term for things that use the body, but with awareness, mm -hmm. that we're trying to develop ourselves. So that would include mindfulness, you know, we're being aware of the body, but we're also developing ourselves. And, you know, there's a whole field, the words used differently by different people. Another definition I use a lot is as a type of intelligence. Um, there's a few more philosophical ones, but uh, yeah, this has become really my life's work. Yeah, yeah. I love that word, the type of intelligence. So before we dive into why does it matter, I would love to hear what led you here, what led you to this moment by, you know, making embodiment your, uh, your life's work. Well, I guess it's just what I'm interested in, really. Um, you know, I've told the story many times on interviews about how I grew up and, you um, was sort of read a lot of books but that didn't fix my problems and um I found something was missing in many ways it's a microcosm of the macrocosm of our culture that uh, Wikipedia hasn't solved the world's problems you know all this information is there 
we supposedly have all this connection, you know, with Facebook and email and Zoom and all the rest of it. Um, but we were pretty disconnected from ourselves. And that was my own story. And that led to some pretty serious problems personally. Um, so, you know, first of all, I got into martial arts and then through that yoga, dance, other things, meditation. And, um, you know, for me, it's it, ultimately it's just what's satisfying. Um, it's what I do for fun. I mean, you know, I had an evening off with my wife yesterday. We went dancing. It's just like what else is there to do? Um, I find it very strange people aren't deeply interested in this given the benefits given the profundity of it and given how much is lacking in the world i would say you do find resistance well in some ways it's kind of cultural but i mean i used to work in the corporate world uh, doing embodiment i did occasionally still do but i used to do a lot of that leadership stress management training and um you know, people say Look, everyone's miserable everyone's stressed everyone's burnt out people are leaving their jobs people are arguing with each other people are you know drinking too much alcohol people are depressed blah 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 uh, but we don't want to fill our bodies and we don't want to fill our emotions and please don't talk about the body mm-hmm. and i'd be like well <laughs> there's a problem here <laughs> uh, and I've, i got actually quite good at it, dressing up in a suit and talking about it in an accessible way and yeah. slipping a bit of neuroscience to sweeten the pill and but then you know mindfulness came along as a movement and that's really helped my world you know 20 mm-hmm. years ago it's very different and um, now I think things are much more acceptable. Um, you know, I was at a breathwork course last weekend and it was just full of, you know, normal people, inverted commas, not just sort of hippies and yoga teachers or even PTs or coaches. It was just full of really regular guys, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the idea that coming back to the body may be useful is getting more obvious. And I think, you know, we see kids addicted to their devices or we're getting, you know, feel fried after a weekend of, you know, a week of emailing at work. We feel lonely, disconnected because we're on a COVID lockdown. And the sort of things I've been teaching for years start to start to make a lot more sense to people. So I think at the moment, despite there being a lot of difficulties, there's, a, there's actually quite an opening for this work. Uh, mm-hmm. People have realized the benefit of <laughs> social co-regulation and mm-hmm. things that uh, help us manage our nervous system, all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because there's more experiences out there. How, do our, how are people accessing this? It's just... Well, I, I think there's more necessity. Uh, I mean, you, if you now, it's a little different in Portugal, which is why I want to move there. <laughs> But um, you try not having a practice if you live in Moscow, London, New York. Uh, you yeah. will go crazy very quickly. Um, so there's, there's a reason, you know, yoga is so popular in those places. There's a reason corporations are teaching mindfulness. Now I could have some doubts and some worries about the commercialization and, you know, making mm-hmm. it shallow, blah, blah, blah. However... You know, I've been quite um, outspoken on that topic, actually. Um, however, people need it, so there's an opening. And there's just much more of it around. You know, my mother did yoga, but she had to drive 50 miles to a yoga class. Mm. I can walk to 10 yoga classes within 20 minutes of my house. Um, and on top of that, I can go on Zoom and see a thousand yoga classes. Mm-hmm. So um, the there's been a big acceleration with the Zoom classes of You know, I have a teacher in New York, a teacher in Berlin, a teacher in London. Uh, and of course, you know, I still go to local classes and dance classes because there's no replacing that. Yeah. Um, so there has been both an increase in necessity and an increase in, in supply and demand. Let's put it that way. There's an increased supply and an increased demand. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you can touch also about this idea that sometimes you refer to, because now you're talking about yoga classes and yes, it's accessible. Uh, this mm. difference between the fitness and the embodiment. So again, both have their place, right? And I'm going to the gym later and I'll be doing mostly fitness and very little embodiment, maybe a bit because I can't help it, but most, you know, mostly fitness. So fitness, we're working on the body. 
trying to get skinnier, build our muscles, gain weight, lose weight, whatever. There's some physical aim. And awareness isn't so key. Now, I need to be aware while I'm lifting weights so I don't drop them on my foot or something. But it's not really the aim of it. And I'm, what I'm developing is the physical. I'm not developing my character. Now, that might happen accidentally. You know, you could take up a fitness class and get tougher or get more determined or, you know, something, some other quality might develop. And, and there's a tradition of this forever. You know, this is, goes back to the Greeks. It certainly goes back to the English public school system, which invented all the sports. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry, Portuguese people, we invented football not you. <laughs> and um, in Cambridge. So, um, you know, rugby, all these sports that the Americans were in and, you know, baseball became for So this is, was from a tradition of developing the character originally of young men right in schools um so there is a tradition of the physical and the what might say embodied or character development crossing over and then of course asian traditions really brought in awareness in a big way you know every japanese school kid does judo or kendo they don't don't do it to learn to fight japan's a very safe place japanese people don't fight much um they, 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 they do it as character development um and also you know particularly the Asian arts, some Western ones as well, it's like Feldenkrais, Alexander, but most of the Asian arts, there's this emphasis on awareness, which you won't find in the average gym. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, occasionally you hear of it, Schwarzenegger would talk about it, but it's, it's pretty rare. So um, the aim's different and the method's different yeah. and nothing wrong with both. It's yeah. different things. Yeah, and I sense there's also a difference between uh, these two, which is one is about development in the long run and another one in the short term and the concept of time, right? The way we go to maybe to the gym or to the fitness is like, okay, I have 40 or 45 minutes to, you know, do the strength workout or whatever. Um, That's not necessary for definition, actually, because you can Mm -hmm. do quick embodied work. Um, Mm -hmm. You can do 10 pull-ups quickly, but you can do a centering exercise quickly. Um, Also, you can do it to change state and trait. Mm-hmm. so you could exercise just to feel good one reason i exercise is i get a nice buzz from it you know i work, do weights i go in the sauna and afterwards i feel good the rest of the day you know i'm kind of in a grumpy mood now i won't be after the gym in an hour you know and um so this changing state but then i'm also you know developing my body fitness right. you know, aerobic fitness strength whatever and the same with embodiment so we can shift our state you know, I can, for example, before this interview, I was kind of in a bad mood. So you know, I got up, I moved around, took a couple of breaths, something as simple as that, you know. It doesn't have to be hugely complex to change your embodiment. I was walking along the seafront, you know, did a bit of breath work, walking along this morning, a little meditation this morning. There's things I do to change, you know, I meditated to get in a better mindset for the day. Um, and then we also have what uh, attributes, what skills, what values are we developing? And this yeah. is quite an unusual idea to people these days. But as I said, it was a traditional Western idea. And it's always been an Asian idea that we develop ourselves through physical practice as, as people. And it's almost old fashioned now. We talk about developing your character. People are like, you know, what do you what do you mean? Develop your character, wow. you know, but that, that would have, you know, to, if you'd have taken Britain or Portugal 100 years ago, I mean, that would have been a completely normal thing to talk about. I see. Um, so um, it's strange they got lost. So yeah, it's state and trait, I think, for both of them. What are the myths myths of embodiment? Um, things that yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of myths. I mean, mm. there's a lot of pseudoscience in a lot of traditional practices and sort of more new age ones as well. So you've got to be mm. careful of that. You know, someone say this this twist detoxifies your liver. And, right? No, it doesn't. <laughs> you know, there's a great book on yoga myths by a friend of mine that's worth looking up. Um, and that and, and then. I think I think I think of it as myths, but also we can talk about affectations. So if this word's unfamiliar, it's like um being attached to something which isn't necessary. 
So, for example, do, do you have to speak in a very spiritual voice in order to teach meditation or yoga? All right. So it's an affectation. It's not essential. Mm. Um, and they get picked up. You know, maybe you have to like an Asian affectation and you have to sort of do things in a Japanese way or a Tibetan way. Um, or it could be uh, what are the, some of the other myths out there. Um, I mean, often just embodiment is just taught very inefficiently. So there's this things around teaching. You know, you have to do 30 years of martial arts before you get any benefit. I'm like, no, you don't. You know, I mean, great, you can do 30 years of two, two hours a day, great, you know, but yeah. that's quite traditional for the average Japanese Aikidoka might do an hour of Aikido every morning for 50 years, you know. Exactly. I met people in Tokyo did that, but it can be done much quicker. It can be done much more efficiently. I'm, as you know, I'm a stickler for language and, the, you know, how it's taught. So I, I think we can um, upgrade some of the uh, traditional methods, dare I say that, um, in terms of how it's taught. Um, but you know the fundamentals and the, the beautiful basics yeah, I get and I resonate a lot with your work in that sense that you're trying to show or to tell us okay you know you can use something that is much more accessible and for me that changed a lot to the way that I can also explain to others okay what is this you know why am I doing this it just connected more into this real world right I mean to the to where we are today yeah you don't have to be esoteric you can talk about physiology you know, mm-hmm. that's what essentially what we're working with. Mm-hmm. And you can let's change your physiology. You can you do this science out there that backs various things up, various studies and neuroscience studies and mindfulness studies, which is related. And, um, you know, you, you can do things in a very down to earth way. You know, for a lot, I've worked with a lot of kids. I've worked with the military, the police, a lot of business people, as I mentioned. And a lot of the groups I work with, they're just sort of nonsense. Uh, if you come in there with unicorns and dolphins and rainbows and, you know, trying to stick a chakra up everyone's ass it's just not going to cut it so um you need to put things in down-to-earth language and it it doesn't have to be um esoteric yeah exactly exactly so talking about myths what are the legends who inspired you in your journey well i mean the legends of embodiment go back into prehistory you know sometimes people say oh you invented embodiment i'm like don't say that (laughs) it's embarrassing um so yeah i mean you know the legends we go back to some people like the buddha uh, you know, original shamans, maybe even before that. And then in modern times, you know, we could go to someone like um, Reich, who was the first of Freud students who sort of mm-hmm. thought maybe the body was important. And then there was the Neo-Jungians following him in the, kind of the West, you know, legends like Moshe Feldenkrais, uh, Alexander. Um, I mean, now it's sort of 19th century, coming into the 20th century. Uh, Elsa Grindler. Uh, some dance therapist, body therapist. And then, you know, we get into the 60s. Uh, actually, film Crest is still alive then. We have kind of like the hippies at Ezalan and some of the legends there, whether it be, um, I don't know, Gabriel Roth, the Fire Rhythms, or um, Body Bainbridge Cohen, I think is probably yeah. the greatest living legend of embodiment. Yeah. When someone says to me, oh, are you the most embodied person? I'm like, no, uh, you know, not at all. And she'd be near the top of my list. Um, you know, if I were to pick someone who's a living legend, I mean, Paul Linden, my own, one of my own main teachers, I think it was a bit of a legend. I don't know. I'm not sure. I think anyone alive, I, I almost, I know like Paul and you know people like that would be embarrassed to be called that. So anyone, li- now we're in the sort of, I've, that was a very quick history lesson in a way. Morihei Schubert, the founder of Aikido, you know, there's yeah. this, but I don't want to say anyone living really other than maybe Bonnie because yeah. um, I think I'd be a bit embarrassed. Yeah, it would be nice to have the sort of a timeline. I'm a very visual person. Mm. So it would be great. Make one. I'll help you if you want. Okay. Yeah, it'd be very cool. cool. Sort of shamanism, prehistory, Asian martial arts, Asian meditation traditions, 
um, then, you know, right way through uh, early, late 19th century sort of Western shamanic traditions, early 20th century traditions, hippie 60s stuff, and then sort of the modern rebirth of embodiment. And sort of, I think of myself as the next generation after the boomers. You know, I'm the kind of the, the bastard love child of, of the boomers in the 80s. And um, yeah, so for me, it's that modern era where it went on Zoom and then the last few years, even yeah. since the embodiment conference, where things accelerated rapidly. Exactly. We'll talk about that. But you work with and also kids and police and as an embodiment coach, how, do, how is it to work with such different groups? You know, how do you do it? How do you? Yeah. Well, I mean, you really only have to adapt your language you know, calibrate differently in terms of what's too much, what's too little. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it was a challenge for me. Like when I started, I very deliberately took on the challenge. Like I would always work with a new group until it got to the point where I couldn't find any new groups. You know, I'd be like, okay, angry chefs, okay, single <laughs> mums, lesbian single mums with one arm. You know, I would like really just try and find as many diverse groups as I could of, you know, lawyers, you know, whatever, doctors. And, um, you know, eventually I sort of running out of groups. And if, if someone's got a new one, I'm always up for it. Because I, I feel like if you're a good embodiment teacher, you should be able to... I wanted to test what it did really worked and didn't just work with, like, people who are my friends or something, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I've also worked in 50 countries. Mm -hmm. So it's... it's uh, I wanted to make sure it worked cross-culturally. A lot of my teachers were from, you know, America or even Northern California. And I'm not sure that's going to work in England, let alone Russia. So mm -hmm. I wanted to test it in different ways. And um, as long as you're adapting, it's fine. And I'm yeah. certainly better or worse with some groups, but um, pacing is a big one. Language is a big one. The examples you use, mm -hmm. you know, if I'm talking to the computer geeks, it might be like, okay, embodiment's like your operating system. Exactly. Right? Where if I'm talking to artists, it's like, okay, this is the canvas you paint your life on. You know, exactly. it's going to be a different metaphor, but I mean, as long as the instructions are clear, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not as different as you might think. Like I used to think business people were aliens or soldiers were this or, and then you find out everyone's just human beings really. And exactly. the cultural stuff's important, but it's not, I mean, embodiment connects us all in the shared humanity in a way. I mean, in the end, we all have bodies, right? Legs in some way or another, we all have this sort of capacity. We to all connect. breathe, we all shit, do the basic things being a human and, um, You know, that is that is why when people do sports together or dance together, you know, a lot of those barriers kind of get broken down. And what do you see happening when you're working with, you know, yeah, what happens? <laughs> what happens in embodiment? <laughs> yes. You know, what do you see that change that something that you oh, I can like go to... so many ways with that. Well, the, yeah. I mean, the basic <laughs> thing is, let me. All right. You asked a really fundamental question, which is great. Actually, it's challenging, but I like it. Like the more fundamental answer would be oh. I see them build awareness and then get more choices. Like that's the broadest answer I can give to your broad ass question. <laughs> like, like people gain more awareness of what they're already doing. Um, and then they have more options as to what they can do. So that, that is broad. Oh, I, sometimes, you know, I, you've heard me joke. I just teach awareness and choice. Right? right. So let's say, let's give a concrete example to concretize this for listeners. So let's say someone's a leader mm -hmm. in a company. It could be a parent or whatever, NGO, whatever. Let's so say they're a leader in a company. They start to realize what they're doing. They start to realize their moods, how they affect others. They start to realize, you know, whether they have dignity, whether they take up space, whether they can say no. They start to realize, um, uh, you know, whether they're empathic. They start to realize whether they're tuned into people, whether they're influencing people, how they're influencing people. 
And the first thing they, they go is fucking hell. Oh my God. You know, like I talked to um, one of my mentees last night and she's just gained some more emotional awareness and it's actually quite tough for her. Mm. Right. She's a doctor and, you know, she's in a very intense environment. I won't give any more details than that, but it's pretty intense mm. environment she's in. And, um, you know, that awareness sometimes is painful. You know, but she's also developing new choices. She's challenging her patterns. Like one of her patterns is being really nice to everyone and being super smiley the whole time. And she's realizing that's not healthy. And she's like, that's not honest. And she needs more range. So um, this is where we give people practices and different people need different practices. And that's always at the core of embodiment is, is practices. So what do you think would happen if, you know, education, government, organizations, institutions were more embodied? If the systems were designed to be more embodied, what do you think would happen? <laughs> okay, first of all, they're not because the people that have power you don't know. want <laughs> that's not an accident that they're not okay let's exactly. be really very very clear um so if they were through some miracle or they, you know there is a general evolution happening if you look at the the broad view of history it tends to be quite positive i'm a sort of stephen pinker kind of guy um so there is this general movement towards you know more awareness over time and uh, more ethics um so we'd see every aspect of life transformed you know you go to your doctor And your doctor would do a test, but he'd also ask you how you feel. Um, and, you know, maybe you'd look at your metrics and you kind of tune into certain things. And you'd, instead of just giving you drugs, he would suggest a yoga class. I mean, you can already be prescribed gym membership in the UK. You know, that's oh. that's a thing now. The NHS pay for it. They'll give you a gym membership because they've realized, like, hey, we can save some money. You know, like we can pay for this expensive medicine from a pharmaceutical company or, you know, we can send someone to the gym for half the price and fix the problem. You know, mild depression can be fixed with exercise nine times out of ten. You know, not yeah. severe, to be fair. Sure. Um, so your doctor would be prescribing embodiment practices. They would know the difference between the types of yoga. They would know personally the local conscious dance teachers to give you their phone numbers. Uh, they would know all about trauma. That's a big one. So instead of fixing the, the symptom, they'd look at your any underlying trauma that could be causing your nervous system, digestive problem, skin problem, whatever. So there's a saw in the background. I hope it's not too noisy. Education would be very different because we'd be educating human beings rather than trying to get information in their head. We'd be helping develop young people into more rounded, healthier adults. And um, every subject would be taught differently. Um, it wouldn't be so much sitting. We might see something more like a Steiner school or a forest school as a sort of, you know, in terms of having to be nature and moving. So that's very aligned with embodiment. Um, we'd see people being educated to tune into their life purpose and what they care about rather than be made a cog in a machine or be made a consumer for advertising. Um, you know, the headquarters of Facebook would be burned to the ground by um, protesters. Um, you know, every advertising company in the world would probably also have a brick through their window. I'm not saying anyone out there listening to do this. I mean, we'd see an increase in ethics. We'd see a massive drop in things like child abuse and violence generally. And the idea of war would become repugnant. We would change the way we eat. Um, we would change the way we treat animals. Um, gender relations would be massively better. Everyone would be getting laid way more and having much better sex. Um, I don't know. It's a pretty good vision. What do you reckon? I love it. So... <laughs> I cut that bit out and put it on YouTube. <laughs> uh... Uh, so... My question is a little bit, okay, are there any trends you're seeing in embodiment that, you know, kind of get us there? Yeah, I mean, we're all, we're on the path already. It's, things are moving in a positive direction. Um, trends, yeah, lots of trends, good and bad. So the general trend is 
tools embodiment happening and being more normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, trauma has been a massive thing in the last few years, almost to a sort of quite ridiculous point and trauma rock stars and this kind of thing. Um, so the, the awareness of trauma, I think, has become a big one. Um, neuroscience is kind of trendy, but often it's a sort of just a sort of attempt at justifying authority and it's a bit cognitive. It's not necessarily, I mean, it can be a nice add on, but it's, it's not the main point. You know, practices come and go in fashion, like breathwork has kind of come up and, you know, we'll be interested in what follows that as a trend, you know, it'll be conscious dance or whatever. Um, it's, this woke trend is one I don't like. The attachment of sort of far left politics to embodiment, that's quite a trend in the world. Mm. We particularly see that in California and Berlin, which are two embodiment hubs, and they've sort of attached to sort of neo-Marxist um, uh, intersectional lens to embodiment, um, which is at best half the story. Mm-hmm. I think we need more conservative embodiment teachers, mm-hmm. you know, um, in the same way as it's quite healthy to have left and right wing economists or left and right wing uh, conservative and liberal sociologists. It's quite healthy. I think we, we need a, a balance in the yeah. embodiment world. Um, so, yeah, there, there's, I mean, obviously the move online and how that's impacted the embodiment world the last couple of years, that's pretty profound. Um, and that has pros and cons. So, yeah, there's, there's some of the trends. I don't know if any of those yeah. are interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think uh, you've touched also on one that I wanted to uh, dive just a little bit, which is the aspect of trauma. It has been coming up a lot. Why does it matter to know about trauma, you know? Because it impacts our relationships in an especially toxic way, our health in an especially toxic way, and our happiness in an especially toxic way. But other than that, there's no reason to look at it. Um, Basically, it ruins our health, happiness, and relationships Mm -hmm. if we're not careful. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, this small small T trauma, like we all have trauma in the sense of something overwhelming has happened to us and it's left an imprint on our nervous system, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But some people have a lot more. Mm-hmm. and that can really impact you know i've been there no judgment if you have mm-hmm. uh, it can really impact people and if you want an intimate relationship if you want to be a manager who doesn't overreact uh if you want to eat well and not be a drug addict i mean like traumas at the root of the gabble Mate's work around addiction exactly. you know but it, it goes up in areas that people don't expect like money right like because money is related to survival in most people's heads you know most people have some sort of financial trauma i've seen this in portugal you know they have some kind of thing around food going on where mm. they you know scarcity around food so common in many countries mm-hmm. uh, particularly those about famine obviously mm-hmm. um being a boss you know just like 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 do you overreact and shout at people uh mm-hmm. self-regulation you know it's like it's well and good telling people to meditate but if they sit down and feel their body and it's it's just even numb or absolutely full of fight flight hormones you know the two basic trauma symptoms um there's more but there's the two big main groups i mean they're gonna have a hard time meditating yeah right? if anything they may use meditation to spiritually bypass or they may use yoga as another addiction so um you know there's good work now on yoga and trauma and meditation and trauma yeah. so um i'm glad that it's come into the public eye you know 20 mm-hmm. My mentor, Paul Lynn, has been doing it for many years, working mm-hmm. with trauma. And, you know, at first I thought it was a minority thing and I realised it really impacted a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, all of us to some extent, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, some of us do. It, it doesn't have to be thought of as a life sentence or a, mm-hmm. you know, trauma in a way is a kind of learning. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like I, I developed this idea that trauma gives you superpowers, actually. You know, with trauma, you actually get very, very good at something. 
Yeah. Mm. Problem is you don't get good at something else. Yeah. Right. But if we if we look at the positive, I'm not saying it's good to be traumatized, but people who had trauma, myself included, will develop certain capacities. Mm-hmm. Right. And those capacities can be very, very helpful, which is why they exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so we should always be grateful to our trauma responses, though not the trauma or the traumatizing person. OK, mm. just to make a clear distinction. Um, and those traumatizing, those trauma responses, it can be adaptive, can be super, they're skills, essentially. Um, but then there's another skill set that's atrophied or we haven't developed or we're even anti. So, um, you know, maybe someone's very strong boundaries, but isn't good at listening. Okay, yeah. that's in my case, or the opposite. Someone's really empathic and open, uh, but they've got crap boundaries and they can't say no. Yeah. Um, so different people need different things. Luckily, there's lots of great modalities out there now. The information is much more available. Some people have taken it a little bit far. You know, they've weaponized it in different ways or they've... Um, almost made it like everyone's treading on eggshells you know but um i mean this is sort of in a way is a better problem to have than um yeah. everyone being blind to trauma you know which is the case throughout most of human history i mean in, in a way you can think about this like most of human history was most people being traumatized and not being at heel now the slight advantage our ancestors had is they lived in better community, they lived in more nature, they had more religious and symbolic and ritualistic lives, so they had some trauma healing modalities that we don't have. But they didn't have a conscious awareness of trauma or what it was. You know, I mean, it's in the Bible, the sins of the father will be visited under the son for five generations. I mean, <sighs> that's basically how long it takes trauma to work its way out without therapy. Mm. Yep. Right? Yeah. So, I mean like that's uh that's a hell of a thing five gen and you still see that in the middle east you know yeah. um, i've been there i'll tell you trauma just gets passed on well we've got a chance to cut that loop now you know my dad was an alcoholic but i was less of an alcoholic in the sense i got sober earlier because i had more psychological awareness i had more you know mindfulness I had martial arts i had tools he didn't have and he got sober at 60 i got sober at 27 if i have a son he might get become a drunk for a year and get sober at 18 like things are getting fucking better Are you saying that embodiment is a way to actually uh, support the knowledge we already have about trauma, you know, the more cognitive and scientific knowledge? Now we can really, what do we do with embodiment and trauma, you know? Well, it, it, trauma is disembodiment and it's, it's something overwhelming happened. I can't feel it. It's too much. So I'm going to stop feeling. So you can't talk about trauma without talking about disembodiment. Yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah. Uh, there's other aspects to it, but it's a key aspect. And any trauma healing modality will involve embodiment as a result. That's not to say you can just go to the average yoga class, but it will involve some you know, calibrated way of doing that. Um, and any theory about trauma, that's nice. I mean, it's nice to know about the neurotransmitters or mm-hmm. the part of the brain that's not working very well or whatever. But any healing modality has to address the body. In a way, embodiment came back through trauma because talk therapy didn't work. You know, people came back from Vietnam when they, you know, when they diagnosed PTSD was about the 60s and 70s as it became a thing again. And they noticed that domestic abuse survivors and veterans had similar symptoms Mm -hmm. and they went, okay, there must be this thing called trauma. And they previously called it shell shock in World War II and combat fatigue. Uh, no, combat fatigue in World War II, shell shock in World War One, but they'd always forgotten about it in between. Um, this is weird amnesia that happens. And then they made this link with between women and, and male soldiers, more mainly women domestic, mainly male soldiers. And like, ah, there's a bigger thing here than just war mm-hmm. trauma. And at the time, they tried to sort of do talk therapy because that's what therapy was, right? And it didn't work. Yeah. It just didn't work. So that's when, you know, people like Bessel van der Kolk, other people came in, you know, Pete Levine, you know, the pioneers said, well, 
what else is there? And started inventing David Baselli, you know, started inventing all these modalities that are now pretty normal. Just recently uh, published a new book on embodied meditation. Do you want to talk a little bit about what is this? Because meditation yeah, is sure. you know, mean, familiar to a lot of us, but what's the difference <laughs> now? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really depends on your terminology, right? So even when mindfulness comes from a certain translation of a Pali word, you know, the British, the English translation sounds a bit more mind than perhaps the Pali word. Um, so first of all, all embodiment teachers meditate pretty much. And there's a reason for pretty much every senior one that I've spoken to meditates regularly and most of them in depth. Um, why? Because awareness is the foundation. Okay. So awareness, yeah, there's more to it than that, but mindfulness and uh, embodiment, for example, there's things we work with you can't become mindful of, like you can't just feel patterns. You can feel your sensations. Yeah. And also embodiment tends to be about more about choice and developing ourselves, you know, which unless you're looking through like a Buddhist transformational enlightenment end, you know, lens, it tends to be less orientated to change or developing ourselves. Um, but again, it all depends on your terms. So someone listening could always argue with that. Yeah, I think what we're seeing in sort of modern secular mindfulness was this emphasis on mind. Um, and in a way, it's quite traditional, i.e. Buddhist, though not mindfulness is Buddhist, but they're the most, the school that have the most established forms of meditation that you will find christian meditation you know islamic meditation um but traditional buddhism does emphasize body in a different way and we could also say that some adaptations are needed because you know when the buddha was teaching his students 2500 years ago they weren't sitting on their iphones they probably weren't sitting in chairs even pretty sitting on the floor so the modern the life modern life has a number of features to it which are numbing acceleration technology even being indoors right like we don't feel the wind on rain on our skin you know like life was quite uncomfortable for sort of human beings before a couple of hundred years ago and um as a result i think certain things about the body were taken for granted so we can think of an embodied approach to meditation as a both a return to and development of traditional meditation practice um and it you know obviously it's body focused rather than say sound focused or yeah. visualization focused or whatever. yeah yeah i think it's essential work so thank you for bringing that your plans of moving what what uh yeah what's happening here here as in portugal well i guess um i mean i took the online thing to the biggest i always take things to the extreme because I'm, i'm not a very moderate person you know we did the online and i went how big can this go and i, I talked to daniela you know we did fifteen thousand people the first embodiment conference online And I said, what about 150,000 the next time? And she went, that's impossible. Blah, blah. I went, no, 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 we can do it. And it turned out to be more than that. It turned out to be more than three times that. It was half a million people. And I went, okay, so I pretty think I've taken the online thing to the max. Mm-hmm. And I like teaching online. I think it's good in a number of ways. Accessibility, it spreads out learning. But I was really longing to, you know, post-COVID, just really longing to go, okay, I want to teach people in person. But I was also realizing my own embodiment which is a fundamentally what I'm interested in. I'm not really a business person or community organizer. I mean, it's a secondary thing. You know, I just, my body, my notice was, just, I was just so much more in my skin, in my body, in my bones, when I was somewhere warm in nature with community, in community with people who weren't completely dysregulated. Um, and I went, oh, where's like that in the world? I want to move there because I don't really want to live in a, a cold country where I have to stay indoors. And, you know, I went for a walk this morning and the sun was out, but it was just pretty chilly, you know? Also just places that had the industrial revolution a lot earlier uh, tend to be more disconnected. 
places that don't emphasize community, places where there's not so much nature. And I started looking around and there's a few options in the world, you know, I like Slovenia, um, but Portugal kind of was one of the ones that really came top and uh, it's got nice tax laws, which help and um, nice cryptocurrency laws. And um, I speak a bit of Portuguese, just a tiny bit because I lived in Brazil. So that was a sort of bit of, had a bit of a base. It's not so far away that I can fly home and see my mum or niece or something. It's not like, I don't know, I've got friends in Copenhagen or Bali. Just, you know, it's a proper European country. You're the least annoying of the Mediterraneans, let's be honest. You know, as, as you go, Spanish a bit crazier, Italian's pretty crazy, Greek's very crazy. My colleague Virginia's listening to this. Israeli's the most crazy. So, um, you know, of all the sort of Mediterranean sort of pleasant places with good food and community, like, don't get me wrong, I love Italy. I love the Italians. I would never work. I would never work there. Would never work mm-hmm. there. Holidays, perfect. Um, Italians, lovable, awesome people, but not to live. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, basically, Portugal seemed to be uh, seemed to be a solution. It seemed to be like a lot of spiritual communities developing there. A lot of friends of mine moving there. And I, so I spent two months there this year in two different seasons, and also just found it was just full of nice people and awesome embodiment teachers. You know, I went to some great classes. I don't know, I'm thinking of Pedro's class yeah. in Bern. Or it was contact jams. I went to the Ten Chi Centre, which was wonderful, just outside of Lisbon. You know, and I got to sit on the beach. And, you know, I remember being a prior grande, eating some squid with the five rhythms teachers that I met at Ten Chi and just going, yeah, this is just slightly a better life. It's also a bit slower for someone like me who's very accelerated. That's, that's like, I'm happier there. My employees like, you're a nicer boss when you're in Portugal. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see how it works out. But I'm um, going to go there at least for a, you know, a little while and see if my, my wife likes it. That's a key factor. Yeah. As long as there's cats, you'll be happy. Good. So, um, yeah, we, we assess countries on the quality of their cats. Major factors are how clean they are. Uh, Ukrainians like cleanliness. Um, how cute they are and how sort of friendly and strokeable they are. Okay. And actually, this last factor is also a trauma indicator. So, for example, the cats uh, in Turkey, for example, are much harder to stroke because they have less trust. They have more trauma. Wow. Um, so, so I'm always observing the quality of, you know, you've got a, the local pussy. It's important. Uh, the quality of, of the kitty makes a big difference. You can see the nervous system of the country through how wired the cats are. Mm. And less wired cats means my wife can, in her words, capture them easier. So um, this is why the main reason less traumatized countries are better. I see many good reasons to move here. Many, many good reasons. <laughs> <laughs> so anything else you'd like to share? Also where people can find your work, you know, follow. You're already very uh, followed, I know. More people to understand yeah, your work, yeah. your body of knowledge. On the internet, I've got the podcast. Yes. They Google Embodiment Unlimited. They can get on our list and they'll find out about events and trainings. You know, we've got a coach training coming up in Jan. Uh, we've got embodimentunlimited.com slash embodiment dash tools. But people probably won't remember that. So just look up Embodiment Unlimited. You can get on the list. Embodiment yeah. Unlimited. Okay. Um, all the podcasts, all the YouTube or anything else. My books on Amazon. I mean, depending on what format you like. And if you don't like me, there's loads of other good embodiment teachers out there. So, you know, do just look around and Perfect. you'll find some stuff. To wrap this up, I have a classic. I'm collecting a few quotes from uh, the people mm. that I interview. Fill in the blank for me. Movement is my constant because. <laughs> Movement is my constant uh, because I'm alive. I, I, I think that's the simplest answer. Yeah. yeah. Movement is my constant because nothing is constant. There's a clever one. You can have that. Movement is my constant 
Uh, movement is my constant um, because I have ADHD and can't fucking sit still. Uh, movement is my constant um, because I'm not allowed a second wife, but I need I need a, a thorough I, I need a d- deep commitment other than to Daria. Thank you. Thank pick. you. Thank you. It's nice when you don't think about something in advance like that. Just go off the top of your head. Anna, yeah. it was a pleasure. Nice to talk to you again, nice and I'll see you in Portugal. See you.